So admittedly, during January, I am trying to encourage everyone to, uh, to practice, to commit to a year of continuous, unbroken, mindful attention. I'm sure you've all succeeded so far. It's only the 27th or 26th. Any breaks in your mindfulness during January yet? It is inevitable that there will be breaks in our mindfulness because our, our minds are, um, are very untrained. And when I say that, I, I, don't, I never feel discouraged because we are, as human beings, very trainable. The die is not cast when we're born. We, it really, whatever we do with our mind produces results. And so if at any point in the span of our life we begin to plant the seeds that lead to more well-being and happiness, those seeds are planted, uh, they bear fruit. And I have a lot of confidence that if you plant the seeds of the Dharma, the the practices and the teachings that are in harmony with life the way it is, that you'll be a lot happier. And the first week of the year, at least my first week of the year, I encouraged in my talk the, uh, the cultivation, the planting the seeds of non-harming in your life. And I, I, always, have the, I, I always assume that everyone who comes to Mission Dharma already is pretty established in what would be called purity of action. That you don't, uh, you don't lie, you don't steal, you don't cheat, you don't exploit others with your sexuality, you don't uh, cloud your consciousness with uh, intoxicants other than smartphones. <laughs> and that you... That you uh, orient your life every day toward goodwill. And I assume that. But I know that there are people here who struggle with the, with the basic training guidelines of, of, the, of the Buddha anyway, which is basically having reverence for life, not killing, not stealing, or taking that which is not offered, not, uh, not causing harm with your sexuality, your speech, or with the excessive use of intoxicants. Many people struggle with that. But when we come to Mission Dharma, I would like everyone to remember that that's part of what you're doing. You're not just practicing mindful attention and being alone together with others, but you're actually committing yourself to non-harming. And, of course, while you're sitting here and practicing, if you are directing your attention toward the simple reality of the present moment, you are fulfilling that, um, that task of non-harming and you're opening to life the way it is. And so you're not in hot pursuit of some kind of, um, some kind of revenge or some kind of acquisition or, or some kind of terrible story about yourself or about the world. You're actually here. So in that way, you are, you are practicing non-harming. But it's good to, I think it's really good to, to reflect on that desire to plant the seeds of non-harming. The moment you wake up in the morning and the last thing you do before you go to bed at night, and then all day long, if you can remember those basic training guidelines, that is the first part of the Noble Eightfold Path. Purity of action or purification of action. Wise speech, 
wise action, wise livelihood, things that not causing harm in any domain of our life. And that's what makes possible when you come here to sit quietly, to, or whenever you sit, or whenever you pay attention, to be fully, wholly present. Because your mind is not so, um, so um, affected by your, past, by your past actions, if you've, if you've established that foundation. The Buddha said, if you, if you establish that foundation of pure, purity of action, it makes possible purity of mind, which is a mind that's well collected and composed, whole, unified, where you're here and you don't want to be somewhere else. I don't mean just on Tuesday nights, I mean any time. When you gather your attention, when you, rec- when you realize I'm aware, and you realize what you're aware of, that, you're, that you have that almost a felt experience that there's nothing that can improve on this. I always like to check it out on Tuesday nights. It, really, when you're just here and you're not looking back and you're not looking ahead, does it get any better than this? Because you need the past and thoughts, as one of my teachers said, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. And really, you don't have anything when you're present other than just being awake. And, and that's, there's a kind of freedom in just being here. Easily, easily overlooked. It's so easy to associate our well-being and happiness with where I've been or where I'm going. And so sad that people, as Hakuin Zen Master said, that people ignore the, the near and search for truth afar. It says like someone on, on, in a, from a wealthy family wandering, you know, looking for their next meal, or, or a fish who's in the water and is thirsty. We don't understand, as Rumi put it, or Kabir, one of those guys, we don't understand that what's most alive lives, lives inside our house right here. So if you establish purity of action, it makes it possible to really take in the, the deliciousness of being unified and whole in the present moment. And then, then you, it's possible to purify your mind and to see clearly what you're doing, to... If you're somewhat unified and whole, you, you see, oh, I'm, I'm actually um, doing things in my life. I can see what I'm... I'm not just aware of being whole. I'm also aware of the habits of my mind and my life that say, you know, get me out of here. I want to be somewhere else. And you can actually... Once we start, stop and sit, it's amazing when people come on retreat at this... This first couple days, the enormous level of restlessness and agitation, and you know, one moment you you feel like you're on cloud nine, the next you can't stand anybody at the retreat, and it's all part of this uh, purification of this very strong habit that we have to uh, almost an addictive habit of wanting things to be other than the way they are, and how that how that keeps us from from knowing that sense of wholeness. But a little bit of collectedness allows us to see those, those mind movements, those, those, uh, those tendencies of mind to be spinning out, proliferating, complicating the simple reality of the present moment with a whole story of worry. And there's so many awful things that you can worry about. 
so many things that you can be excited about. So many things that you can remember that were terrible. So many wonderful memories. But if you get spun out in all of our, in all of our elaborations on reality, you, you really miss life. The only place where life is, which is us sitting here. Everything else about our life is just a story. The only life you have, really, is the one that we're living, right? This instant, this living reality. Isn't it amazing that our whole life situation from, our pres- from present evidence is just a story? Whoever we think we are, whoever, you know, whatever our titles, our roles, all of that's a story. What we only really know in real time is I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm smelling, I'm tasting, I'm feeling, I'm thinking, um, I'm talking. Whatever it is, we're listening. That's all. Life is really simple. One of the pithy teachings from the Buddha, one of the things that he realized that when he finally sat down and started to examine the flow of life, training that middle part of the Noble Eightfold Path called purification of mind, and, and which includes wise effort, effort to cultivate the things that are helpful and maintain them, to abandon things that are, that are harmful in our lives and to prevent them from, from happening, and then to train our attention in mindful attention, moment to moment. He saw that as he, as he clarified just what's actually happening in the present moment, you know, even though we're often thinking about, oh, there's so much to think about. But he said very simply, in the seen, there's just what's seen. In the heard, there's just what's heard. In the smell, just what's smelled. In the tasted, just what's tasted. In the felt, just what's felt. In the cognized, just what's cognized. That's all. That's the totality of our life. And to think that, that we that we miss the totality of our life, which may seem kind of simple, may seem like not much, but the, the simple and not much is what's really extraordinary when you connect with it. It's so much more full and satisfying than the narratives that play through our mind, that the, all the elaborations. So in the scene, if we can practice, in the scene, just see what's seen. What are you seeing right now? What are you hearing? What are you smelling? What are you tasting? What are you thinking about? Thinking is totally one of those sense experiences that we have. But the problem is we're often living from our thoughts rather than noticing them. So developing mindful attention, purifying our mind, is making that shift from being just carried along by our stream of memories and hopes to noticing them. Everything is about waking up and noticing. The center of the, of the path is mindful attention. Noticing where we are. Last week I talked about not just noticing moment-to-moment microscopic awareness, but noticing our, um, the context. Noticing that whoever's here, we're sitting in the mission district. We're, and the mission district has its own demographics and it's a very diverse community. And there are, there are, in the midst of this, there are haves and there are have-nots. And, there, and it's not to be blind to that, not to be so in our own internal world that we miss the, the context that we're living. That's part of mindfulness too. 
But the Buddha was very clear, though, about training inner and outer mindfulness that as the center of the, of the path of awakening, that which we want to do 12 months out of the year, 24 hours a day. Not so many people can be mindful in their sleep, but some people can. I'm hoping that you can. But that the training of mindfulness he suggested was the, the first and most important one, one that both fortifies us, the one that, um, that, that our whole practice depends on, is mindfulness. The first foundation of mindfulness, the first establishment of mindfulness, is mindfulness directed to our bodies. He said, if there's one thing... Oh, monks, and you're all monks for the sake of this conversation. There's one thing, oh, monks, if, uh, if trained, if practice leads to... In fact, I'll just read it. I think I have a copy with me. One thing, oh, monks, if developed and cultivated, leads to a strong sense of urgency, to great benefit to great security from bondage, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, that means insight and wisdom, to a pleasant dwelling in this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation, freeing of the heart and mind. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. Starts right here. Starts where you're sitting. There's no higher mountain to climb. There's no more exotic experience to have than mindfulness directed to the body. It's what, kind of what I was alluding to before. Just being close with our attention to our senses. How sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. That's the, that's the, the key here. The open secret, that the real secret is you right here. Not tomorrow, not yesterday. It's your immediate living experience. Not a view to adopt or a belief system, but something to be experienced directly. Notice what happens when you... Let your last drama fade and before the next one arises. Notice what happens when you just feel your tush on the kush. Sorry. Hear the heater. Not give rise to any limited idea of yourself for a moment. Just be aware of the body. And not the idea of the body, but the felt experience. You'll experience temperature, the fire element, earth, heaviness, hardness, sense of cohesion, moisture, the water element, vibration, winds, gas, the air element, nature, connecting with nature. 
amazing how you don't have to travel to the, to the beach to go, or to the forest to go back to nature. It's nearer than your breath. Easily overlooked. So mindfulness directed to the body, the center of the training of mindful attention. It gets more elaborate from there. And the Buddha next recommended that if you start to notice the world of sensation, the world of, of sensing any door of perception, you'll also notice that every experience that you have is accompanied by a, by a valence or a feeling tone. Every single experience. And it may seem like not such a big deal that every experience is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, otherwise known as neutral. Anybody have any experiences that they felt today as unpleasant? That you experienced just as unpleasant? Normally we don't catch it at the moment of just feeling the unpleasantness of an experience. Normally our mind immediately goes into reaction. I don't like that. Get me out of here. Give me something to make me feel better. Let me watch something, buy something, eat something, call somebody. Very rarely do we just allow the inevitable unpleasant experiences to come and go. Often our training is to follow it by some kind of liking, disliking, or checking out, distracting ourselves. So the Buddha recommended that we come not only close to our sensations, but close to that experience of feelings. A feeling of pleasant, if it's pleasant, unpleasant if it's unpleasant, neutral if it's, if it's neither pleasant or unpleasant. You see, if you feel the pleasant and let yourself feel the entirety, the fullness of pleasant, it, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't move on to, I want more of it. It doesn't move on to, I need more of it, I have to have it. It doesn't move on to then feeding the addictive cycle. We just allow ourselves to feel the pleasantness of things and recognize, as we will with everything, that pleasantness comes, pleasantness goes. Not very reliable, comes and goes. It, doesn't, it gives a lot of pleasure. It doesn't give any lasting satisfaction. And we develop wisdom about that. And we prevent ourselves from being caught up in that, um, that endless cycle of wanting what we don't have or not wanting what we do have, which keeps our mind in a state of restlessness and agitation and associating our happiness with someplace other than right here. Every time we let our mind trick us into thinking we will be happier in some future date, this is actually a, a, a form of, a form of self-abandoning. It's a form of leaving ourselves, a loss of presence. And then when I feel unsatisfied or unhappy or miserable, I'm, I'm, my tendency will be to blame it on the neighbor, blame it on whatever is unpleasant, instead of just experience the unpleasantness of it. Instead of um, just experiencing the pleasantness and not have to be such a slave to the wanting mind. 
very important somewhere in the span of your practice to tune in to these feeling tones because uh, this is where the whole addictive cycle goes this is where our whole fantasy world gets generated just in our simple reactions to, uh, to pleasant and unpleasant and the neutral experiences because they're not so um, they're subtle the tendency is just to check out or just start getting lost in thought and then we're living out of our thoughts instead of noticing our thoughts. So the neutral also, if we can learn to experience the neutral we, and grow in that experience of the neutral when it's present, it aids us in being able to feel a deep sense of contentment and peace and equanimity. It brings balance of mind, allows us to meet the joys that come, the sorrows that come, without so much reactivity. But if we're unfamiliar with that, that evenness of mind, that neutrality, then we tend to be very reactive and dramatize the, those simple, six simple experiences and turn them into into suffering, into mental suffering. So all of this training in mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling, and then finally mindfulness of all the different states of mind that we enter into, uh, when, knowing when our mind is vacuous and spacious and calm and agitated, noting, noticing when it's wanting, notice when it's not wanting, noticing what we're thinking about, noticing our top tunes, all of that helps us wake up to reality, helps us come out of the tangle of confusion and ignorance and helps us see the way our minds work, where, it's, where the, the closest thing to us and the least understood, we can go to the moon and not understand our own mind. It's, it's craziness. And yet, it is within each of our capacity to be as um, to be a, a a kind of explorer of the human consciousness. It's it's so close and it's infinite, and you can keep and it's infinitely satisfying too to 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 learn about the the nature of our minds. And if we stay with mindfulness of mind and mindfulness of feeling and mindfulness of sensation long enough. Inevitably, you will come to see very clearly what are called the, the hindrances, the common states of mind that when they are present lead us to confusion, which is, I've alluded to them tonight, the wanting mind. Whenever we're caught up in the wanting mind, the view that I have to have something to be happy, I have to go somewhere to be happy. That trick of the mind that says uh, happiness is at the, end, the end of the rainbow is somewhere else. That's the wanting mind that desires for pleasures of the senses, pleasurable experiences, and gets on the, the gerbil wheel, the, the flywheel of endlessly waiting for the next experience. We can notice that wanting mind. We can notice the aversive mind that says, if only I could get rid of this, if only the world were different, if only everything should be different than the way it is, I should be different than the way I am, my neighbor should be different, Everybody, all that, the expressions and the projections of our aversion, if we could get to know that as a state of mind, it's not the neighbor, it's our aversion that's driving us crazy. If we can work with, our, with those mental states, work with restlessness, work with agitation, work with dullness, work with doubt, those stories of insufficiency that play through our mind. Any of you ever have those? 
if we can actually recognize it as doubt or as a story and not believe it as, as an accurate description of our accurate uh, definition of our nature, but just to see it as a, as a narrative of doubt, you'd literally be liberated because you see, I'm not doubt. Doubt is, awareness is not affected by doubt. Doubt is just another changing condition, another very difficult weather front. But it's not, it's not me, it's not mine. And we can see that. And we can see all those different states of mind that cause us suffering. I'm doing a little survey right now. I'm not elaborating on any of them, but sorry about that. But it, you can also then, if you're training in mindfulness, not only see the hindrances to awakening, you can start to see the factors of awakening, the qualities of mind that when cultivated lead to, lead to this sure heart's release, this awakening of consciousness. You see the value of calm. You see the value of investigation, this quality in our mind that grows with, with mindful attention. You become interested. You start to, it just, your interest in investigation of life opens up. And you, you also see the value of this quality I spoke of just a moment ago, equanimity. You see the value of, of concentration, of a mind that's well collected. You see these different factors of enlightenment. And all of these factors and the seeing of the difficulties and seeing the factors of enlightenment, they, they lead to a clarity of perception. Because all of our suffering comes from confusion and ignorance and lack of clarity of perception. Most of our mental suffering. And once it is that our clarity of perception is made strong, we, experience, we, we then can can experience for ourselves not just purity of action, not just purity of mind, a mind that's well collected, but finally purity of view. Purity of view or purification of view means that you start to understand the nature of reality. And, per, and specifically something that we can do in real time, the next, as you leave here tonight, Tomorrow, but in a more profound way, if you train your attention in a very precise way, moment to moment, that you will see inevitably the four, uh, four truths that mark everyone's existence. The first one being, if you are born. This is what, turned, this is what awakened the, the Buddha, and the invitation is to see for yourself if, it, if this awakens you. I remember the first time I heard even a teaching on this, uh, these, this awakening of the Four Noble Truths, the, the um, otherwise known as the, the center of wise understanding. The first time I heard a talk on it, I just wept because I was so happy somebody, someone was saying it. It had such a deep resonance for me. And, and it's essentially seeing clearly in an unvarnished way that life has within it things that are really hard to be with if you're born. If you're born, it is the leading cause of sickness, of old age, of dying, of death, of not always getting what you want and not always wanting what you get. It's the leading cause of being separated from everything that you hold near and dear at some point in the span of your life, that this is how it is. It's not an aberration. It's not something you should run from and think you can improve on. It is the basic truth of our existence that everything is in a state of flux and change and we need to 
if we really want to be free, we need to open to this. Stop fighting it. The fighting of it, it just adds a second blow to already th the things that are already difficult to bear. The second arrow comes in our reaction, our not liking, wanting things to be other than the way they are, and our difficulty at just accepting this basic fact. As this one story that I've read often here at Spirit Rock, at, um, at Mission Dharma, says, um, once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems and he told the Buddha about his troubles farming and how either droughts or monsoons had made his work so difficult. And he told the Buddha about his wife and how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children, yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted either. And when he was finished, he asked how the Buddha could help him with his problems. And the Buddha said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And he said, what do you mean? You're supposed to be a great teacher. And the Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough, others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. And what's the good of all your teachings? The Buddha replied, My teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that? asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. So, so the essence of this is captured in a phrase from Thich Nhat Hanh, No mud, no lotus. If you don't open, if you don't open to the, the difficulties, there's no flowering of, of the wisdom heart. There's no flowering of compassion. Because our opening to the pain of our lives, the difficulties, that is the tenderizing agent that leads to a sense of connection and intimacy and uh, just a wise relationship to our life. We didn't stop there. We don't stop there if we see clearly with mindful attention. We see that what turns our, these basic challenges into mental suffering is, is this, um, this chronic tendency of wanting things to be different than the way they are. That expresses itself as that, that tight fist of grasping and craving and, and uh, endlessly um, trying to make things... Um, better, different. And it doesn't mean that one should not try to heal where things are broken and find justice where there's injustice and open our eyes to the context of, of, of that we all share this world together. But the mind that is caught in a state of craving, in a state of aversion, doesn't see clearly enough to, do, to engage in compassionate action and make wise choices. And often we just end up, end up being part of a problem of our neighborhood or our, of our um, relationships because we're caught in our reactivity. 
So the Buddha's recommended uh, recommendation, and that which we can, once we see that that our mental suffering is so much caused by this habit of mind to uh, be in a state of craving, to constantly being toppling forward and obsessed with what's next. The Buddha recommended, and that which you would do naturally if you saw this clearly, is you let go. You abandon this cause. You, let, you open to life. You, you just open your fist and just, just open your heart. And then you can see clearly, and then you can work for, for your own and everyone else's benefit. But not from a place of, of hunger and thirst, which is insatiable. And the Buddha didn't stop there, and I'll do this in one minute. said that there is an end, and one can experience this and realize it for themselves. There's an end to this grasping, and it's, it's a kind of freedom, and it's, that space is there, and it's open and inviting and comfortable. There's freedom. There's a cessation of suffering, of mental suffering, and each of us can realize it. And then finally, there is a path. And that path is what I've been talking about the last three weeks. Purification of action, purification of mind, purification of view. The the Noble Eightfold Path has wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise mindfulness, wise effort, wise concentration, wise intention, inclining toward goodwill, toward non-harming, toward generosity and wise understanding, and that's understanding uh, these truths. So it's all mixed together, it's kind of a big hologram. But the center of it, the navigator, is moment to moment, locating oneself, mindfully attentive, clearly comprehending what it is you're doing, when you're doing it, formally when we practice, knowing you're sitting, Connecting with your breathing, connecting with your moods, connecting with your mind, your mind states, internally, externally, until there's nothing left out of the vastness of your awareness. And it truly is limitless. So I hope everyone cultivates the path, lets go of the causes of suffering, so we can all be liberated together. Right. Thanks for listening. Let's have a little quiet time and then we'll go. Two passages to close this evening, one from the middle-length sutras of the Buddha. This sutra is called One Fortunate Attachment. Let not a person revive the past or on the future build his or her hopes. For the past has been left behind, the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let her see each presently arisen state 
Let him know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made, tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentless, day by day by night, it is he, the peaceful sage has said, who has one fortunate attachment. And then the often shared poem of Jennifer Wellwood, entitled, The Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. May all beings be free. May all beings be happy. May all beings live with ease. Thanks for your patience, your kind attention. Thank you for your generosity. It makes this wheel keep rolling. And hope to see you next week. And please be mindful as you leave. It starts right now.